0: Stories, fables, ghostly tales.
1: Well, well, well. If it isn't my devilish demons, fallacious fiends, whisperers of the wells, it's Spooktober and I'm here to share with you my next three tales. Oh, yes. Your first tale is overgrowth. When plant engineering becomes a little over-engineered. Your second is my reflection keeps talking to me. You know it's bad when you're tired of hearing yourself. And lastly, the long list. When a man takes advice from a girl six feet under. Join me, ghouls and ghasts, for a positively screamer of an episode!
0: (laughs) Overgrowth. I fear the hulking giant that waits just outside my home. I'm too afraid to even look up at him in his full size. He stands two, maybe three stories tall. Silently watching me, his silhouette a pitch black void against the starry night sky. At any moment, he could rip through this flimsy shelter I call a home like a dull knife through skin. So, why doesn't he? Why doesn't he get it over with already instead of staring me down? Because he's waiting for me to go outside so he may crush me and put me out of my misery. Giving in to him seems more and more appealing as time goes by, because as much as he scares me, there are more of them out there. A lot more. Some smaller, some even bigger. They're all around you too, and you know they are. I don't know how you can even ignore them. They're everywhere. If you look out your window right now, you can see one, if you're lucky. Dozens of them, if you're unlucky. Unlucky. You might even have a few lining your driveway. You might even have a tire swing hanging off one of their branches. My name is Dr. Adam Collier, and I am afraid of trees. You may think it's funny or unusual, but I promise you that by the time I'm done telling you my story, you will fear them as much as I do. You'll have to forgive me for any pauses or slip-ups you may hear in this recording. I am trying as best as I can to recount everything in one take with as much detail as possible. As I said, I am a doctor, specifically of chemical engineering. I am a research and development technician for the Eleuthera Company in Silverside DE. My team and I are responsible for developing and testing prototypical chemicals for all sorts of things really. I suppose the NDA doesn't matter anymore. I was working on synthesizing a form of carbonic anhydrate to offset carbon dioxide emissions in the atmosphere, but even the best test result out of all my trials required L-aspartate, fatty acids, uracil, L-arginine, and sorry, force a habit, I'll try to refrain from using too much technical jargon from here on out. What I meant to say is that after a series of failures, the closest thing I could come up with still required too much. be feasible. I asked my new assistant, Dr. Anna Newmolz, to contain and dispose of the chemical, as I had deemed it a failure. But unknown to me at the time, she continued to perform the tests with it. She theorized that the desired reaction could occur if the compound was introduced to isoenzymes of, sorry, if she provided the compound with organic plant matter to consume. She took some of the byproducts of my tests and made them into a mixture of her own, and she put some of that mixture onto a fern she kept on her desk, completely against protocol and off the record. She told me all this later, after her own test had failed to produce anything. Let's just say that they had failed as well. Not only did she break a dozen rules, but she also failed to create anything that could even be considered close to a success for our purposes. Looking back now, I should have fired her. She did show me something entirely unexpected and deeply interesting. The chemical had not eaten away at the fern, like she expected. In fact, the fern that she claimed was almost dead had sprouted new leaves. Quite a few, actually. At the risk of being penalized for my own assistant actions, I hesitantly reported this to my superiors. Instead of punishing me, they encouraged me to perform more tests. They saw potential for this as a new fertilizer. From that point on things moved quickly. Our entire team ran more tests on the original compound I had made. It turns out the chemical was more than just a decent fertilizer. We saw a 2% increase in the rate of construction of plant cells. Once my team published our findings, funding started flooding in from all over. Government agencies, farming corporations, and agrochemical powerhouses were all chomping at the bit. Our findings could impact food shortages or help places that, could, that couldn't regularly grow crops. It wasn't too much of a stretch to say that our research could have solved world hunger. With all the funding and more than enough manpower thrown at this, we pressed onto the prototype development phase. Everything seemed fine. There were no issues and no downsides. We further engineered the chemical to make the affected plants drought and frost resistant as well. We even devised a means of controlled distribution. Two dizzying months later, we conducted the first tests on our outdoor crops. Tests proceed admirably but this latest batch grew a little too fast and more concerning our control crops which should have been untouched by the chemical also showed accelerated growth. We determined that the test plants themselves were producing their own version of the chemical, which must have spread to the control crops by being carried on the wind, or perhaps it had penetrated deep into the soil, or maybe some bees had carried it across fields. We weren't exactly sure. Regardless of how it reached them, leaves and stems on all plants in both testing plots were growing 5-10% faster at the cellular level. Unfortunately, it wasn't just the test and control crops that were affected. Two days later, we noticed that the forest surrounding the test fields had grown 50 yards closer. That's when we knew we had a problem on our hands. Hazmat was called in to do the cleanup. They burned down all plant life and salted the soil 200 yards into the surrounding forest. They also burned and salted the test and control crops as well. While it was an embarrassing mistake, we were relieved that it was successfully contained. Our relief only lasted a few days. The forest was back to where it was originally in just two days. This extreme rate of growth made no sense. And to make matters worse, it wasn't contained. There was evidence that it had spread even further than the woods. Faster growth meant more dispersal of plant matter, which potentially meant more plants were getting tainted with the chemicals. Hazmat was called in again, but this time the damage was too widespread. Within days, plants all around Branmar County showed signs of hyperactive growth. On my morning drive to work, the same blind turn that I had taken dozens of times before was blocked by a giant branch that would have surely killed me if I had not stopped in time. The branch wasn't there the day before. I'm sure of it. The next day, that road was closed. In just a few short days, there were reports of major roads being swallowed up by greenery as far as 15 miles from our testing site, and it was still spreading. But we still didn't know how. We think the wind must have picked up the pollen or leaves or seeds of the tainted plants and carried them all over the state, maybe even further. The Eleuthera Company called in an emergency response force the size of a small army, They burnt and salted as much greenery as they could, not leaving anything to chance. Hundreds of trained professionals managed a controlled fire. The company's ties to the outbreak still hadn't reached the public. But when the massive cloud of smoke blocked out the sun, reporters came to the largest chemical company in the tri-state area for answers. And that was Eleuthera. Some news outlets claim the extreme overgrowth was a result of a bioweapon test gone wrong or an international act of domestic terrorism. Some even reported that it was a sign of the end times. Panic spread across the nation and so did the chemical. The first reports of accelerated growth in the redwood forests on the west coast came out in just two short weeks. We didn't know enough about it. Nobody did. Was it the wind that was spreading the chemical? Was it bees? Was it people? The government didn't want to take any risks. All flights and boats out of the country were shut down. The United States tried to quarantine the overgrowth. Reports of property damage flooded into news agencies. Top-heavy trees were toppling over and crushing people's homes. Tree branches were breaking in through windows and piercing walls. Apartment buildings were being torn apart by roots plunging into their foundation. I remember the first story of a direct death caused by the plants. All too vividly. Brendan Waters was an elderly, bedridden man staying at the Woodford Manor nursing home. He woke up one day to find that his small room was being invaded by wiry vines. Those same vines were thickest around his bed, where they had coiled themselves around his legs. He tried to pull them off, but they were too thick, and he was so weak that he couldn't. He called for help but the nurses were unable to get into his room. A patch of vines and roots had barricaded the metal door from the inside. Brendan could only weakly shout for help. Hours passed like this. We know every detail of the agony that Brendan went through, because nurses were right on the other side of his door as he screamed about the cause of his pain for 35 excruciating hours. The vines that tied him down sprouted sharp thorns that tore into his leg as they crawled further and further up his frail body. The fire department was called in. The firefighters tried, going in through the third floor window, but an immense tree completely blocked it. The same window that Brendan asked his nurses to keep open on a beautiful day. On beautiful days was how the overgrowth got into his room in the first place. Firefighters worked in shifts to chop through the thicket surrounding the window, but it was much too slow. And the branches got thicker the more they chopped. Roots squeezed Brendan's chest. The firefighters cleared out the entire nursing home and went to work tearing down the wall nearest Brendan's bed. He couldn't feel his legs anymore. When they eventually opened up a hole into his room, they still had to contend, with a mesh of pale roots on the other side. Brendan cried out for his family. None of them were there. By the time the firefighters finally carved through the thicket, Brendan was no longer screaming. His body had been pierced by dozens of sharp, tiny branches. There was no blood on the scene. The news reported that his face had bright green leaves growing out of it by the time the coroner arrived. The report came out a month ago. Many... Many more have suffered the same fate since. The country fully succumbed to panic. Many attempt to burn the aggressive forest down themselves, gasoline became more useful for starting fires than it was for cars. All major roads were blocked, anyway. So many people died in these amateur controlled fires, and they died for nothing. The plants just grew back even faster, and it wasn't just people that were falling victim to the overgrowth. Greedy tree limbs grabbed power lines, causing power outages everywhere. Communications eventually went dark too. Thirsty roots pierced the water pipes, and they soon went dry. The overgrowth took so much. Too many people have listened to the screams of their loved ones, slowly being strangled by bright green leaves. All they could do was abandon them, or join them. People try to retreat to deserts, but even the deserts, showed more and more signs of overgrowth. We made sure that plants treated by our chemical could be used in places where it's hard to grow crops, after all. They were drought and frost resistant too. Who knows what the death count is at now? I'm sure I don't want to know. I was shipped off to the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station in Antarctica by the US government a few days before the borders were closed. Some of the original research team were flown out here too. We were working on modifying the original chemical, attempting to turn it into a herbicide. They even flew in Dr. Nemours too. It was clear that she was in way over her head. I should have fired her. Our team wasn't sure if the overgrowth had reached anywhere outside of North America by that point. We hoped it hadn't, but a French scientist that the United States flew in confirmed what we had all feared. The overgrowth had crossed the ocean. Her and her team traced the chemical to algae that had been made its way to their shores via fish. Her wife was crushed to death by a falling tree. Her name was Julia. Disturbing questions spread throughout our makeshift research team. If fish could carry the chemical all the way from North America to Europe, how long before it made its way to other continents? How long before it made its way here? These international scientists provided invaluable information for our research. We saw some debatably hopeful results, but they were coming much too slow. We were all desperately fighting the nagging fear that we were much too late. But as the foremost expert on the chemical, if we couldn't figure out how to stop the overgrowth, who could? One day, I overheard the guys talking about the Antarctic coast having a green shore that wasn't there before climbing up the ice walls of the glaciers. The research team and I tried to ignore these reports, hoping they weren't true. We had to ignore them and focus on getting the herbicide to work as fast as possible. But hastiness is what got us into this mess in the first place. So we ignored the guards. We ignored the fact that they started carrying flamethrowers. We ignored the way their numbers gradually decreased. We ignored the green fuzz cresting over the mountainside and how it crept closer each day. We ignored the streaks of green in the snow that appeared in our footprints as we made our way from our quarters to the lab. Dr. Nemours didn't come into the lab one day, even though we couldn't afford days off. I had to ignore the thick teal moss that covered her like a blanket when I went back to check on her in her quarters. I should have fired her rest of my team showed up to work as days went on. They might have felt this plan wasn't going to work and decided to go out on their own terms. I had to ignore the splotchy moss that covered their quarters and how it might have meant that they didn't go willingly at all. I had to ignore all of these things and focus on my work because if I don't... There is one thing that I can't ignore though and it's standing about 60 feet away from me. Is it closer than it was yesterday? I first saw it as I was walking in the hall. I passed the window and saw a sharp green antennae poking out of the snow. I didn't think algae could form structures like that. A few hours later, I saw what I could only describe as leaves form on its ends like lopsided veins. This was surely a new kind of plant life that has never existed before. It would be considered beautiful if the circumstances were different, if there was anyone besides me around to see it. But it looms out there, silently watching me, standing two, three stories tall, waiting for me to go outside so it can put me out of my misery. Silently watching me, its blue-green skin, a vulgar wound against the pure white snow. It waits. Just outside these walls. And I think it's getting closer. Written by Aphibicus192000. My reflection keeps talking to me. I'd never hurt my reflection. Here, let me tell you how nicely I treat it. At four in the morning, on the dot, I wake up and immediately go to my bathroom mirror. I've repeated this process every day, never missing the exact time once. My reflection always talks to me, but since we are divided by a fine glass structure, I find it hard to hear him. Easy solution. I had to learn to lip read ever since I was a young boy. He repeats the same thing every morning I speak with him. Give me a glass of water. I bolt towards the kitchen, Take out a glass, pour water into the glass, then I return. I put the glass down onto the sink and watch him as he deliciously downs the whole drink in one second. I do the same, but a little bit slower, taking in the warmness of the beautiful, fine liquid. Dinner arrives. Oh, what a joy! I place myself on the table where I feast, not forgetting to include my mirror mate. Me and him eat. Oh, so good! The delicious delight almost makes me burst. I have never, ever in my entire life damaged my reflection. No dents, no scrapes, no nothing. Pure cleanness wins the day. My doctor knows not. He says I am mad. <laughs> he is rightfully wrong. He tells me I need breaks or I need to relax. And he prescribes me medicine. He knows nothing. Madmen need breaks. Madmen need to relax. Madmen need medicine, and I am no madman. He is the mad one here. Riddance of his existence would be fruitful. I took it upon myself to make sure he speaks no more. He is the one who will take the medicine. I place myself in the driver's seat of my car and start to boot up the engine. I put the car mirror in the view of myself, speaking to my reflection along the way. I arrive at the doctor's house not knowing where to begin my reflection tells me to start by the bathroom window as the bathroom would most likely have a mirror located in it i untighten the screws on the window and i creep inside not making a peep as i stare into the mirror my reflection pulls a sledgehammer out of nowhere and places it on the sink and wow it appears on the sink i creep down the hallway not making a single sound i soon enough arrive at his bedroom door. I open the door and take a peek. He's wide awake. I can tell. I'm guessing that his superstitions caught up with him. Or maybe... Never mind. I stand in his doorway for about half an hour, watching as he squirms and struggles to get back to sleep. He's trying to calm himself, I can tell. It's not going to work, Doctor. Doctor, I think you need to relax. I time the perfect time to pounce. And Now! Now. I swing the sledgehammer swiftly at his soft skull. He tries to let out a scream, but is interrupted by the fierce fury of the ferocious weapon. I feel like I might burst. He falls to the ground, the blood seeping onto the floor. It was very easy to dispose of the corpse. I burnt him in his own fireplace. The blood was easily swept up by a singular mop. What was the cover-up story? Glad you asked. He had left the country to become a professional surgeon, the perfect cover-up for the perfect crime. I drive back home, admiring my reflection on the way. At four in the morning, on the dot, I woke up and immediately went to my bathroom mirror. He said something different today. Fetch me a glass of water. I run to the kitchen and pour the water into the glass. I come back and watch as he deliciously downs the whole drink. I couldn't drink it, I wasn't thirsty. I left my full glass out in the kitchen and poured the liquid into the sink. I had to ask myself, is this even water? Or is it all just a facade? I came back to the bathroom, only to be greeted by my reflection speaking through the glass. I was fully capable of hearing him. What was this madness? Daring Daring today, aren't we? What? You You want want to be be different now? now. After After all this time of the the same same routine, routine, this is the day you want to be different. Why are you acting irrationally? That's the same question I'm asking you. But that, does that doesn't matter. matter. You, really you really want to, want to show your true, true colors now. Go ahead. Be, be my, my guest. guest. He pulls out the same sledgehammer again. The same one used to kill the doctor. Do, Do it. it. Destroy, Destroy me. me. You, want you want to be, be different? different? Destroy, Destroy me. me. No, 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 I can't. Destroy Destroy me. Destroy me. me. Show them all. Show them all. Show them all all who you truly are. I swung the hammer at the mirror, smashing it into little, tiny pieces. I was free. I could show them who I truly am. Give Give me a glass of water, water, I said to myself. Written by Jack the Cart The Long List When Melissa was 14 years old, her father sold her to a crank cook named Possum for two pounds of crystal meth and a broken-down Trans Am. Possum kept her chained to a rusty wood stove during the day with a mason jar of water and a box of Cheerios, while he worked in the lab back behind the trailer, breaking pseudofed and ephedrine tablets down into glass-like shards of amphetamine. In the evening, Possum would swing open the door, the catfish stench of burning chemicals wafting into the tiny trailer and unchain her so she could make him meals, wash dishes and mop. At night, as the bullfrogs began to bark and the crickets chirped, she would press her fist into her mouth trying to stifle her cries of pain as he lay upon her, his rank smell of sweat and chemicals overwhelming her. Two months later, a couple of Boy Scouts found her naked corpse in a drainage ditch in a patch of woods outside of Eureka, California. A pale tangle of limbs sticking out of the trash and sewage of the dirty culvert. Though the case officially went to homicide detective McClenny, Detective Standler had been at the crime scene assisting. Standler had helped take her by the arms and pull her remains from the rank sewer water and debris. As her body rose up from the muck, her head had lulled to the side and her wide, staring eyes had looked straight at him. For a moment, Stanler thought he saw a flicker of life register in them, though her grey, bloated face clearly revealed she was long, long dead. Stanler settled deeper into the seat of his car and flipped open the battered copy of Hamlet scrolled down the long list of names he had scrawled on the last page. What a fucking week. Suspended and out on bail, looking at manslaughter charges. He was parked in front of the police chief's suburban home, waiting for the fat fuck to arrive home from work. He eyed the long list and sipped from a pint of wild turkey, washed it down with a warm Budweiser and thought to himself, someone who could do something like that to a 14-year-old girl. How can you let someone like that live? Who would possibly miss them? Who could possibly care? And no one had. Nobody missed that piece of shit possum. Two weeks paid, administrative leave was all Stander had received after he emptied his service revolver into the sick degenerate's face. It had been a big bust, the lab, killers of meth, and an arsenal of weapons. Everyone in the department was happy and all he had gotten was two weeks' paid leave and a wild party at Albi, thrown by the other detectives and a gaggle of uniformed officers. When the inquest asked him why he had gone out there, outside his jurisdiction to that backward no-man's land, he had simply replied he was following up on a lead from an informant. What was he going to say? That a ghost had told him where to look? That the little dead girl had come back from the grave and told him? that in the dark, pre-dawn hours at twilight time between sick, drunk, and excruciatingly hungover, he would awake, lacquered in sweat, his wife snoring loudly beside him, the room spinning, his heart threatening to break free from his chest, and there she would be, a frail, little girl. At the foot of his bed, her stick-figure limbs draped in a white nightie, its hemline stained in dark, crimson streaks. The first time he had seen her, he had screamed, horrified. The raspy noise of his own startled voice burning his dry mouth and throat, his wife awoke and shot straight up in bed. What What is is it? it? What What is is it? it? Stanley blinked his alcohol-swollen eyes. Only darkness. The girl was gone. There was nothing. Uh, Nothing, Nothing, honey. honey. It was nothing. Just go back to to sleep. sleep. I just had had a nightmare. Okay, honey. honey. His wife had rolled back over and immediately began snoring again. He lay there till the room grew pale in the morning light, his flesh tingling, wondering what he had seen, if he was going insane. The next time the little girl had appeared, he was calmer. He blinked twice quickly, expecting her ghostly form to disappear like last time. But she didn't disappear. She remained there, looking down at him with her cold eyes, sunken deep in their dark sockets. He stared in disbelief. Was it real? Could this pale figure possibly be real? That's when she had stepped up to him quickly, and her blue lips parted, and she began to speak, to tell him things in a whisper. He thought he could smell the grave on her breath as she murmured in his ear about the night her father had sold her to Possum. It had been a dark night, deep in the backwoods of southern Humboldt, past the mountains of Alder Point and Blocksborough, in a place that didn't even have a name, near Zinnia, on the Trinity border, where it snowed in the winter and the cold mornings found the hills hardened in ice. The sky was black, and it was pouring rain. Her father had been drunk and handled her roughly, pulling her by the arm through the muddy front yard. She was terrified, and devastated that her daddy's big Dana-logging boots were splashing mud up all over her dress, her mother had been dead less than three weeks her father had shoved her roughly through the front door of possum's trailer she's all fucking yours her father had spat at the old bearded man in greasy overalls possum had shuffled forward and took her cheeks into his grizzled calloused hands squeezing her face tightly moving her head back and forth for inspection oh she's, she's a, pretty a pretty one, one. If you say so, her father said. She's got that weird eye and those fucked up teeth, but she can cook real good and clean. She's damn handy with a broom. Oh, yes, the old man chuckled, handing over the sealed bundles of methamphetamine. She'll do. She'll do nicely. And two months later, she was dead and abandoned like so much trash. The sick fucks. How could he have let them live? And no one missed Possum. No one mourned him. They had thrown Standler a party. He had been a hero. That time. The second time was different. That one had gotten him suspended, most likely fired. No pension, no 401k. He might even see some time for that one. Standler sipped his whiskey, reached down between his legs and lifted up the beretta. An old pistol his father had given to him long ago. He cradled the heavy, cold weight of the gun, waiting for his old boss, that fat fuck to arrive back at his nice suburban home. Maybe his wife would find him dead. On their well-manicured front lawn. Maybe one of his teenage kids. Oh well, to have a sick fuck like that for a father? Just deserts. It was a warm night, and he had the window down. The whine of passing trucks on 101 softly humming in his ears. He thought of Hamlet. He had taken a Shakespeare class back in college when he was studying criminal law, still entertaining the idea of going on to law school and becoming an attorney before Charlotte got pregnant and he quit school and joined the force so he could start making money for his new family. Only to have her give birth to a stillborn seven months later never to conceive again. Hamlet... The tale of the haunted Danish prince had always stuck with him. Standing atop the castle parapet, the ghost of his father crying out for him to avenge his savage murder. Ghost, my hour is almost come, when I too, sulfurous and tormenting flames, must render up myself. Sandler always wondered, was Hamlet insane? But no, that would mean they were all insane. Horatio, Marcellus, Bernardo, they had all seen it. They couldn't all be insane. It had to be true. The ghost had to be real. The second time the little girl told Stanley to kill, things hadn't worked out like they had with Possum.
1: My father,
0: she had whispered, kill him. And how couldn't he? Anyone who would do something as sick as sell their own daughter surely deserved to die. She described his car, where he would be, the pound of meth, Stanley would find in the truck the glock he always kept under his seat, Standler had waited at the Red Line Hotel on Broadway, right where the little girl had told him to, and just like clockwork, the car had rolled right into the parking lot. Standler had been amused at the look of surprise on the man's face when he strolled up with his 38 leveled right at eye level, squeezing around off before the jerk even had a chance to utter a word. But there was no meth in the trunk, no gun under the seat, and it ended up it wasn't her father at all, at least that's what the investigators said, they claimed it was just some businessman from Santa Rosa. But when Melissa appeared before him the next night, shimmering and ghastly in the moonlight, she told him no, it had been her father, they were lying, all of them lying liars. The little girl had whispered to him with her pale, blue lips and graveyard breath. They had tried to hide it. It was a conspiracy. And they had fired him because the police chief was in on it. That's why the police chief was next. He had to go. That's why Standler sat in his car outside his house. A pistol cradled in his hands. He had to kill his old boss. Off that meth-dealing, slave-keeping degenerate son of a bitch. And there were more. There are many of them, the frail ghost had murmured. His wife was one of them. She had made the list. She was a cheating meth whore, fucking the whole department for crank. The little girl had told him all about it, late at night, moments before the morning, when the earth swelled silent and cold, and his heart beat, so it threatened to leave his chest. Yes, there were many of them. A whole list, and it was a long list. Written by Humboldt through.
1: Well, my little goblins, my creatures of the night, Did you shiver, did you quiver, or scream in
0: delight? Because I hope you really enjoy the episodes, and I want to take the time now to thank the legends that support me. First up is my old night T titan.
1: Matto Star, the rocketeer that shoots this podcast into space. With the longest bungee cord known to man, shooting the podcast high and bringing it right back down to Earth safely.
0: Thank you immensely, Matto, for your support. I've been trialling some new techniques today for the audio to again help it run clearer and crisper and I think I'm making progress. Thank you immensely mate, as always, for your brilliant support. The show wouldn't be the same without you. Thanks Matto. And a special honorary thank you to
1: Majestic Maya. May your cat claws be forever razor sharp.
0: And my amazing white-tea warlord,
1: Lezucco Rex, blasting down all the barriers and blockades, helping this show improve. Thank you for the positive feedback last week and your constant support on the show. You really put a smile on my face. Cheers, mates! You're a legend. And my sneaky, peaky, devilish creepies, my old gray enforcers are Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffaelli, Michelangelo Yocone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, Paige Kramer.
0: Thank you so much, mates. <laughs> and I'll catch you lovelies next Monday. It's you do-do.